In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. I have always found that to be a powerfully dramatic moment in the classic story of David and Bathsheba. Imagine poor Uriah, the man that the king has condemned to death, who is made to be the bearer of the message that seals his own fate. Did he know or suspect what it said? And how much did he suspect concerning what had happened between his wife and the king? I have previously dealt with Bathsheba's side of this troubling story. You can listen to her story in my episode 3.11, You Saw Her Bathing, What Were You Doing on the Roof? But Bathsheba and Uriah never actually cross paths in the biblical story, so he must have had a very different perspective on all the events. I kind of think it is worth the effort of trying to tell the story from his point of view. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.17 Uriah Kill the Messenger Uriah looked at the scrap of scraped leather that the king had given to him just before he left to return to the front. It was the kind of parchment that the king's secretaries used for things like inventories and lists. It had been written on and scraped off many times before, and you could still see some of the marks from the previous times. What had been written this time in the strange Hebrew script by one of David's secretaries, Uriah certainly did not know. He was no scribe, nor had he ever been interested in becoming one. Uriah was a fighter, one of the best that David had. He had been with David right from the beginning, from back in the days when David had been little more than a bandit and raider hiding out from the authorities. David had hidden out in the cave of Adullam and used it as a base of his operations. In those days, many people had flocked to him. In particular, those who were dispossessed, deep in debt, and desperate had come to the future king and sworn their faithfulness to him. Uriah had come too. His reasons had been a little bit different. Uriah had always been something of an outsider. He was a Hittite. There was once a time when the Hittites ruled a vast empire that spread all the way from Anatolia almost to the borders of Egypt. But 
that was a long time ago. So long, in fact, that it had been forgotten by most. But Hittites, like Uriah's family, didn't forget. When the empire had collapsed, they had remained in the Levant, far from their original homeland, where once they had ruled and held the fate of many in their hands, now they were outsiders who never really belonged anywhere. And so Uriah had come to David looking for a place to belong, and he had found it in the brotherhood of warriors who fought for David. Uriah had become one of David's famous thirty. They were men of renown, whose stories were told all over the countryside. And Uriah loved every one of his fellow warriors, would have willingly laid down his life for any of them, because they accepted him for who he was. They didn't care that he spoke with a strange accent or that he had odd clothes and customs. All that they cared was that he could wield a spear and strike with a sword. So Uriah had given his whole heart to the company of the thirty. He had even embraced the god that they took as their patron, Yahweh, the tribal god of Judah. He began to use a new name, Uriah, instead of his old Hittite name. He was told that it meant, Yahweh is my light. The thirty shared dozens of battles where they proved their faithfulness to each other. Every single one of them knew that he could count on his brothers to back him up, and that gave them all the confidence to prevail in even the most dangerous of circumstances. Uriah loved all of his comrades among the 30. But over time, he formed a particularly close relationship with his shieldmate, Eliam, son of one of the king's counselors, Ahitophel, the Gilonite. He honestly couldn't keep track of how many times Eliam had saved his life or gotten him out of a tough spot. And, of course, Eliam would have said much the same thing about Uriah. And so the two men came to feel closer than brothers. And it was likely that feeling that prompted Eliam to approach Uriah one day with the proposition. Oh, My dear Uriah, he began, you know that you are like family to me. I think it is about time that we made our relationship official. I have a daughter. She is just coming to an age to be married, 
and I cannot think of a better husband for her than my own shieldmate. Oh, Uriah, will you marry my daughter, Bathsheba? Now, up until that point, Uriah had not even known that Eliam was married, much less that he had any children. It was not the kind of subject that usually came up on the battlefield. So, obviously, Uriah had never met Bathsheba. He certainly knew nothing about the incredible reputation she had as the most beautiful woman in Gilo. Nevertheless, when he heard this offer, Uriah's heart welled up with joy and his eyes with tears. The idea that he, an outsider and a foreigner, could actually be welcomed into a family as prestigious as Eliam's had always seemed to be something completely out of his reach. The very idea that it was happening seemed a dream. He could not speak, could not even accept his friend's gracious offer in words. Instead, he reached out and pulled his future father-in-law into an embrace and wept upon his shoulder. For the first time in his life, Uriah felt as if he had found a home. The wedding was arranged very quickly. Campaigning season was coming, and Eliam was determined that everything should take place before he and the rest of the army were required to leave. Uriah spent the days of preparation in a dizzy kind of delirium. He did not understand many of the Judahite customs, but he just smiled and went along with them. Eliam's extended family all gathered in the village of Gilo and feasted him for days. They all seemed so happy and eager to welcome him into their family. Finally, the night before the vows were to be taken, Eliam, almost as an afterthought, decided that it was time to introduce Uriah to his new bride. Uriah had faced off against iron chariots, against massive giants clad in bronze armor who carried spears with shafts as thick as a weaver's beam. He had run with a shout of joy on his lips into a melee of a hundred men. None of that had frightened him more than the slight young creature that entered into the room where he waited as she walked on her father's arm that evening.
She was beautiful and delicate. But that, if anything, made Uriah even more frightened of her. He tried to talk to her, but he knew nothing about her life, and she knew nothing about his. There was nothing to talk about. So Uriah was deeply relieved when their awkward meeting was mercifully brought to a close. They made their vows before the elders of her family. But nothing was consummated that evening. Instead, Uriah traveled to his new house in Jerusalem, accompanied by his companions, all members of the Thirty. Ever since he had taken possession of the city from the Jebusites, David had been building up Jerusalem. He now had his own fine palace. He had also been granting houses in the city to some of his best warriors who, like Uriah, did not already have lands in Israel. And so, mostly through the efforts of Bathsheba's grandfather, the king's counselor Ahitophel, Uriah had been granted a new house in the city. When he arrived, Uriah went and stood in the central courtyard of his new house. He looked up and saw the walls of David's cedar palace that overlooked his new house, for the house was located directly next to the palace. As he looked up at the roof of his king's house, Uriah's heart should have been swelling with pride at having earned such a position of honor. But for some reason, all that he felt was a deep unease and some premonition that there might be something wrong. Bathsheba arrived with her companions the next day. The feast and celebration that followed was, by far, the greatest that the wedding party had enjoyed thus far. But Uriah knew exactly what would soon be expected of him, and his eyes continually drifted towards the entrance to the bedchamber. He tried to delay things somewhat by proposing extra toasts and even attempting an awkward speech. But the guests were impatient and they were soon bundling the couple towards the door with many a ribald comment and some dubious advice to the groom. And so, Uriah once again found himself alone with Bathsheba, while the party continued outside. 
Uriah took a deep sigh and was about to say that maybe they should get on with what was expected of them when his new wife spoke. Oh, my Lord, she said, do not be angry with me, but I think that we must delay. Uriah was puzzled and looked at her questioningly. She seemed frightened, on the verge of tears. Please understand me, she continued. I, I didn't know that this would happen today of all days. This is all still very new to me, but you need to know that my time has started. This only made Uriah even more confused, and he had to ask her what she was talking about. It is my, my time, my monthly time. It just started this morning. I don't know if it is the same among your people, but among the Israelites, it is forbidden for a man to um, be with his wife during her monthly time of impurity. Uriah had never felt so relieved in his life. He smiled and then reassured her that he had no problem with being patient for her. They remained in the bedchamber for some time, knowing that the people outside would not allow them to leave. Eventually, they did begin to talk together. I'm not going to say that they really connected or understood each other, but at least Uriah began to have a feeling that eventually they might find a place of comfort together. Eventually they slept, and when they finally emerged the next morning, they took the taunting of their guests with as much goodwill as they could muster. The orders came the very next day. The weather had turned, and the general, Joab, had decided that it was time to begin this year's campaign, which would be fought against the Ammonites. As usual, the 30 were the first to deploy. They headed to Ammonite territory, even while the tribal militias were still being raised. The king himself, it appeared, would not be joining the army this campaigning season. Eliam and the others all expressed their regret to Uriah that he had to be deprived of his beautiful new bride so soon. But honestly, after spending weeks struggling with Israelite marriage customs, 
Uriah was content to be heading into a situation where he, at least, knew where he stood. Weeks passed. After some initial losses, the Ammonites fell back into one of their chief walled cities, Rabbah. The Israelites laid siege against it, while General Joab laid his plans to try and take it. At such times, a warrior encampment often chafes under the lack of action. Everyone seems to become a busybody and gossip spreads like a wildfire. So it was that everybody knew when a messenger came from the king in Jerusalem. He apparently came with a strange request. The king was seeking an update from the front, but his request was oddly specific. Soon Uriah was summoned by the general. Joab informed the Hittite that David had specifically requested him to go and give a report on the progress of the campaign. Uriah knew very well that there were many others in the army who were better suited to such a task than himself. But, of course, he dared not say anything to Joab. He packed up and left within the hour. But if David's request was odd, the actual interview with the king was even odder. Uriah was brought into the royal presence. David asked all the right questions. He asked about the deployments and the morale and how they had surrounded the city of Rabbah. But Uriah got the strange impression that the king didn't really care about his answers. He certainly displayed no curiosity and asked no further questions when Uriah named some of his comrades who had performed admirably. And so it was that after an incredibly brief conversation, David suddenly dismissed Uriah, telling him to go to his house. But it was David's final words to him that really bothered Uriah. Go down to your house and wash your feet, the king said. And he said it with an urgency that surprised Uriah. As a foreigner, Uriah was often perplexed by various idioms of the Hebrew language. But he had picked up a few things over the years. He knew that they had a taboo against using certain words that referred to certain body parts. And their habit was, when they didn't want to refer to a part directly, to use instead the word for another nearby part. Almost always, for some strange reason, something lower down on the body. Go and wash your feet. Go and wash your feet? 
Uriah repeated to himself as he left the throne room before suddenly stopping. Did the king really just tell me that I should wet my... No, no, he can't possibly have meant that. Despite what the king may or may not have told him to do, Uriah did not go down to his house. With so many strange things going on, Uriah just wanted something that was familiar and comforting, and spending time with Bathsheba was neither the one nor the other. Yes, he knew that he had a certain obligation to sleep with his wife sooner or later. Surely his new father-in-law would not forgive him if he failed to produce a child before long. But this did not seem like the right time, especially not with his comrades, including Eliam himself, in the field. Soon the campaigning season would be over, and he would do his duty, but not tonight. So Uriah sought the familiarity and comfort of the guardhouse at the entrance to the palace and bunked down with the men who were serving there. The king was not happy in the morning. He knew, of course he knew, where Uriah had spent his night, and he reamed him out with an intensity that once again startled the Hittite over his failure to go to his house. Uriah stammered out his excuses and reasons and asked if he could just be on his way back to Joab and the army, which response prompted a strange mood change in David. All of a sudden, the king was friendly and inviting, as he insisted that Uriah must not leave immediately. Instead, he must stay and feast at the king's table before he returned to the front. And so it was that Uriah soon found himself in a place of honor in the king's banquet hall. The servants hovered around him, constantly filling his plates with the finest food. They seemed to be especially obsessed with making sure that his wine glass was never empty. The wine was good, the best that Uriah had ever tasted, and he indulged so much that by the end of the meal, he could barely stumble his way out of the hall. The king once again called after him as he left, with some comment about how he ought to take care of his feet. Uriah did consider, for a minute, the possibility of making his way down to his house. But then his stomach heaved, and he quickly had to make his way to the closest latrine. After that, he was lucky that he even managed 
to make his way to a bunk in the guardhouse. And so, here Uriah found himself on the road back to Rabbah. His interview with the king that morning had been mercifully brief. All of the friendliness and joviality that had been there the day before was completely gone, and David had been curt and seemed in a sour mood. Uriah, honestly, did not feel much better. His whole head was throbbing with pain, and his mind seemed as if it was filled with a fog. He was relieved when the king dismissed him, and then, almost as an afterthought, casually handed him the message to take to General Joab. And so now, as he walked along the road and his servant led a mule behind him, he could feel his head begin to clear. He squinted again at the scrap of parchment. Maybe, he thought to himself, maybe it's a good thing that I don't know what it says. Somehow, I think, I don't want to know. For centuries, it seems as if people have been trying to understand the story of David and Bathsheba from David's point of view. More recently, feminist commentators have helped us to better appreciate the story from Bathsheba's point of view. I have certainly appreciated and even used these kinds of feminist perspectives in my approach to this story. But still I wondered about Uriah and his point of view. He seems to play no active role in the story as it is told in the Bible. The only thing that he does that has any impact on the story itself is not sleep with his wife when called back from the front. But I really wanted to see him as more than just a two-dimensional character. There are enough details about Uriah to encourage some speculation. He was a foreigner, serving in the Israelite army. Despite being a Hittite, he appears to have a Hebrew name, which means something like, Yahweh is my light. Uriah is included in a list of David's most elite warriors, known as the Company of Thirty. That list also includes the name of Bathsheba's father, Eliam, son of Ahitophel, the Gilanite. And as for Ahitophel, Bathsheba's grandpa, well, he appears to have been a really big deal and had quite the story arc of his own. But I'm thinking that that story is something that I will save 
for another episode. So I hope that after listening to this episode, you might have a little bit of sympathy and understanding for Uriah. His story is obviously a terrible tragedy for himself and for his wife. David does get the blame for it all in the Bible, but I'm not sure that he gets all of the consequences that he deserves. There are no winners in this story, and many losers. Not the least is the nation of Israel itself, which loses one of its best fighters and a bulwark of the kingdom, all for the sake of a stupid king who couldn't keep his eyes from wandering while walking on the roof of his house. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so that you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. If you liked this episode, why not share it and the podcast with a friend? The theme music for the podcast is Ada. It is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. The mood music for this episode is For the Time Being. It is by Mercy Rock and you can find links to other music on the show notes. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. (laughs) 